is that they tie everything together. They tie together the truth that God has about who we are. A God who truly does see everything we've ever done and has mercy on us sinners. And those words are these. Come to me all ye that travail and are heavy laden and I will refresh you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ, I said that one. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the perfect offering for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In uh, my training as an Anglican, uh, I went to uh, a priest that was, had been a priest for many, many years. And I noticed this movement that he did when he proclaimed these words. And you may have caught me doing it. Um, it's kind of something that I do. Um, he started with the absolution back there. Everybody's kneeling. And he moves into the congregation as he's saying those words. And he comes right up to the front. And he proclaims who you are in Christ. You're a sinner saved by grace. And then he says... Please stand. The peace of the Lord be always with you. The only way you're going to ever have peace is if you come into the light and see the one who is Jesus who wants to give life. Now that was what was offered to Nicodemus last week. I don't know if if, uh, Steve preached on John chapter 3, but if he did and if you you know it, you, you know the story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the day, right? No. Where does Nicodemus come? under the cover of darkness. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid of all kinds of things. He's afraid that he's going to be found out. He's afraid of what his friends are going to think. He's afraid of all kinds of things. He's a religious leader, a deeply spiritual man who came to see Jesus and heard those incredible words. But he took a pass. He wasn't sure. He didn't want to come into the light. He didn't want to understand that all the scriptures were pointing to the one who was standing right in front of him. And today, if we'd read just a little bit before, this passage was incredibly long, right? You saw the gospel and you saw me turn the page and you're like, holy mackerel, is he combining weeks, right? You know, so you read this huge story in verse four that I didn't read today. There's an interesting verse. It says, now Jesus had to go to Samaria. And you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? It was the shortest point, but no Jew ever went that way. They always took the scenic bypass around Samaria. Was he going there for racial reconciliation? Some people say that, but he never addresses the Jewish-Samaritan grievance. If anything, he piles some more fuel on it. Other Jews would have criticized him for going there in the first place. Is he trying to avoid some kind of clash? No. He didn't need to go to Samaria for a traveling route. He needed to go for a different reason. This week, he comes to an unlikely, undeserving, unspiritual woman offering her life. That's what the sovereign God does. The sovereign God of the universe has a providential plan to meet one of his lost sheep. And you have to wonder, what's going to happen? As you begin to read this story, as John is telling it to the communities that he's speaking to, will she be born again? Will she accept the Messiah? All you know at the outset is that he's offering life to the unlikely and undeserving, to the unspiritual. And at the end of the story, the question that you need to be reminded of is, 
will you have this life? It starts with a simple request. If you have a Bible or you have an app, please open to John chapter 4. And I'm going to be using the NIV version, but it says something like this. Chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then in verse 9, the woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? We need to understand that she's an outcast. She's getting water all alone. She's outside the culture. She's had six men in her life and probably a lot of angry women around the sidelines, right? A Samaritan woman was declared by Jews as unclean from birth. They were worse than Jewish women. I mean, the high regard is not there for this person. And this is risky. It's hot. He's thirsty. But asking a woman for water could have been interpreted as flirting, especially since she has a loose reputation, which he would have known just by the fact that she's there in the middle of the day, and especially since Isaac and Jacob met their wives at that very well that they're at, and especially since using her china bowl would have been completely unclean. Apparently, this woman understands her outcastness better than Jesus does. In essence, she's saying, you're out of line. With a cynical kind of addition, you Jews only acknowledge us when you need something for us. But Jesus isn't deterred. He isn't thrown off by her kind of approach to him. Jesus is willing to break cultural norms in order to save his lost lambs. J.C. Ryle comments on this passage and says, this is important for us to note as Christians. Simple as the request may seem, it opened a door to spiritual conversation. It threw a bridge across the gulf. It led to a conversation of her soul. It is vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come looking for answers. The reality is, friends, people are not going to walk in on Sunday morning, for the most part, wondering who Jesus is. Every once in a while it happens, but it's so rare that we need to realize we need to be more like Jesus and go where they are and simply express our need, whatever it is, and let those who would seem unworthy or below us, in fact, serve us and help us and look for any handle we can to start a conversation with those who are outside. Because after all, what's the reality? We're just one beggar showing another where the bread is. Jesus, though, to her, she truly is unworthy. She truly is in the darkness, and he truly is in the light. So if he's willing to do that, how much more should we? Jesus is offering life to the unlikely, undeserving, and unspiritual. Would you like this life? A simple request precedes an incredible offer. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, Sir, the well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's pushing him a little bit. She's wondering where this guy is coming from. Verse 13, he answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is important because water in the desert is life. 
To not have water is to have death. You in Colorado know this probably better than most. I'm from um, about 10 feet above sea level. That's where we live, right? Literally, the sea is right below us. You can't have a basement in South Carolina. But as soon as I got out here, my whole life became a dry, brittle zone, right? And in fact, I've got to get a drink of water because I'm dying. We've got allergies. We've got all kinds of things. We're coughing and hacking. And no, we don't have COVID-19. Don't worry. But we do need water. I don't see how you people live out here. We used to live here for eight years. And water is everything, isn't it? Like I see all, I see that lake that's down the way, down Taft, and it's like empty. And I'm wondering like, when's it going to fill up? Is it going to fill up? And I heard about the Colorado Big Straw and the, the whole uh, water that you have to get from out, out elsewhere. Without the water, communities die. People die. People have no resource that they desperately need. But she's being a little bit sarcastic. You, a Jew, want water? What in the world? She's got pain in her life. After all, she's had six men. She's desperate. When you see a woman who's had six men, it probably actually isn't her. It's probably that she's been discarded multiple times and has a scar on her heart that's so deep that the only thing she can do is hope that somebody will help her out. She's saying, can this guy give me a bubbling well so I don't have to do this anymore? She doesn't want to have to come again and again in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, socially ostracized from everyone else in the community to come and bring, get water. But she's got this pain in her. She knows it. There's no satisfaction that can come from this world, but she just doesn't have an idea of where it's going to come from. And so she says, give me this water. And Jesus answers, of course, it's yours. No, no big deal. Is that what he says? What does it say in the text? Somebody read it for me so I can get a drink of water. Whoa, what? Go call your husband? What is Jesus doing there? He's being a little cheeky, isn't he? Yeah, go call your husband. I have no husband. You're right, you have six. Six men. Five husbands and one that you're with right now. Not your husband. Now, I always thought we were supposed to be real seeker sensitive, right? We're supposed to like make low bars so that nobody has to confront anything and they can come into church without feeling any challenges or whatever. And I'm not talking about worship styles at all. Uh, there are various worship styles. But Jesus is being seeker hostile, isn't he? He's getting in her face. He's pointing out to her exactly what the problem is. He's blunt. And she should have run. But her pain's so deep that she's willing to confront it which is the way every one of us should be. We have pains in our lives that are so deep that only Jesus forcing open the door to expose them will bring them to the light where, in fact, they can be cleansed. The only hope that we have in life is to come to the end of ourselves, the end of our running, the end of our trying to bring excuses and hide and, and all the rest and come into the light. And it's there that Jesus will meet us. Jesus is offering life to the unlikely, the undeserving, the unspiritual. 
He's asking us today, would you like this life? A simple request leads to an incredible offer and a knowing grace. But then she has an artful dodge. Look at verse 19. You must be a prophet. You see what she does there? She starts to do everything that everyone in the whole world does. As soon as we start talking about the heart, let's talk about theology instead. I love theology. One of my favorite books is a book called God is Love, and it's this thick. It's an amazing, awesome book that goes through every permutation of what it means for God to be love. I love the book. It's huge. It's awesome. It's wonderful. But Jesus doesn't do that. Can you imagine if Jesus answered it this way? Do you understand your ontological reality in the midst of the complexities of answering the syncretistic conundrums of post-exilic Judea Samaritan religious realities? He doesn't answer that way at all because Jesus doesn't care about all that. He knows her need and he simply wants to supply. She needs him. She needs someone to worship outside of herself and her pain. Because here's the reality. (coughs) Coughing is a reality. Everybody worships something for their ruin or their restoration. Everybody worships something. What did Nicodemus worship from last week? His intellect, his position. That's why he comes at night, because he's afraid to lose those things. What does she worship? The physical, the immediate. Something that will cure the pain in the presence right then. The true worshipers will worship a father who sees us in spirit and truth. And that's who the father is seeking himself. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's what I love about our Anglican worship. We start with these wonderful words, especially this week. Went through the Ten Commandments. And, and do you ever go through those Ten Commandments and you go like, man, I'm 0 for 10. They look at all those things and I'm just in trouble, right? Now, I've never murdered anyone physically, but there's a few guys out there that I, you know, never mind. Reality is, is that we're broken sinners and we need a Savior. And she's willing to, re- to receive that Savior. She finally begins to get real. The woman said this, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She has hope covered under a whole layer of men and life and theology and all the rest. She knows that there's hope and that hope is in Jesus. And then he simply says these words, I who speak to you am he. She's standing right in front of the creator of the universe. And he is desperately unsafe. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this wonderful scene. It's a beautiful scene where Susan and Lucy and the children, the Pavenzies, are with the beaver, the two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, right? And they've come in and they're hearing about this new strange land called Narnia. And they begin to hear about Aslan. And then all of a sudden, they hear about Aslan being a lion. And I think it's Lucy who says, or Susan who says, is he a tame lion? And Mr. Beaver laughs. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. God is not safe to our brokenness. He's not safe to our wounds. He gets in the middle of them and either heals them or lets you walk away. And she doesn't walk away at all. She leaves her water jar 
this woman who desperately needed water. And she goes and says, look in verse 29. Look at this thing she says. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, who's up for that this morning, right? Let's have real confession, right? We've got a smaller group of people. We can all just write all our sins and pass them to the center and read all of them out there. Anybody good for that? I saw you, you actually raised your hand, but I think it may have been before you heard everything I was talking about. The reality is, is that none of us want to do that until we realize that our sins are not as good, as big as the power of God. And that's what's happened to this woman. She's come to the place where she realizes that her sins, though they are mighty and huge, are nothing compared to the power of Jesus who loves her and wants to know her and wants to save her soul. Communities are filled with Nicodemus's and Samaritan women, each one seeking to ameliorate their pain with some knowledge or while living, each with an artful dodge that questions Jesus. But in every instance in this gospel, Jesus is offered to those who are blind in some way so that they can truly see. Because life that he's offering is for the unlikely, for the undeserving, and for the unspiritual. And see, there's only one caveat. The only people who can come to Jesus are sinners. I remember doing a funeral for um, an AA group. So if you've ever hung around AA people, they can be a little rough and tumble. Um, they can have a little bit of a, an edge to them. And so this group that was not a, an outwardly Christian group decided to come to the church that I was serving in South Carolina because they had a dear friend that needed to be buried. And so they asked the church if the church could do it. So I knew that this group was a little bit skittish about church. They'd had some bad experiences in the past. And so began, before we began the funeral service, the funeral liturgy, I came in and just acknowledged that. And I said, I want you to know, to this group of people, there are about 100 of them in this small chapel. And I said, I want you to know our lightning insurance is paid up because there's only one group of people that we allow in this church, and that's sinners. And to my surprise, one of the guys stood up and he said, then I'm in the right place. <laughs> to which my only answer was amen. Because that's what Jesus is saying. If you're a sinner, you're in the right place. Jesus came to the fountain as a hunter. He threw grain before one pigeon that he might catch the whole flock. At the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, but last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike for the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. She adored the Christ. She reaped a harvest. We would do well to go do likewise. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name, amen.